We've had rents skyrocket in New Brunswick. Um, and, you know, we think of like real estate investment trusts, um, like the commodification of housing and the, and the steep increase in pricing. And so that's the new landscape. From the heart of Hub City, downtown Moncton, New Brunswick, this is Well and Fair. I'm your host, Anna Larad, and I want to see change in my lifetime. So let's talk. Today we are talking to the Green Party Caucus of New Brunswick. Uh, we have David Kuhn, Megan Mitten, and Kevin Alcino. Thank you so much for coming on, everyone. My pleasure. Thank you. Avec plaisir. So the quick and dirty history of why I wanted to talk to someone with a government perspective is we had a guest on from uh, the tenancy advocacy group, ACORN, and they talked about their petition that they're doing for to bring back the rent cap, which I signed. And then I kind of got this letter back from the office of Jill Green. And that letter, I had, I had a lot of opinions, which I'll be sharing in a different episode, but I also just had a lot of blank questions about kind of what led to what she was talking about in this letter. And I got worried that sort of some of my ignorance about what's going on in Parliament was um, kind of shaping how I was talking about these issues in a way that I was concerned about. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, I guess my first question is pretty abstract. It's pretty general. What, in your guys' opinion, led up to and caused the housing crisis that we're experiencing right now in New Brunswick? Who wants to go first? You can start. You're the critic of housing. I am, indeed. So... I would say it's been a long time coming and both the federal and provincial governments really like washed their hands of dealing with housing decades ago and stopped investing in housing, stopped building public housing and and even were like discouraging cooperatives from being formed. And so that helped contribute to the housing crisis we are facing. Uh, certainly the pandemic, I think, exacerbated the issue, um, but there are many people who've been facing housing challenges for years that would say, okay, no, this was a problem before the pandemic, um, but it really took a lot for the Higgs government to acknowledge that we were in a crisis um, and they're still dragging their heels. Yes. And I felt like this crisis escalated very quickly. Um, and maybe that's because there were some underlying problems initially or because of the pressures that we were under because of the pandemic or both? Well, it did escalate quickly because we had uh, brought forward a sort of modernization of the Residential Tenancies Act to try and create greater protection for tenants on a, on a whole number of areas. And uh, at that, that was about two years ago. And at that time, it was more of a, we need to update the act to provide better protection with people. It did have a rent cap built into it because we looked at best examples from across the country and incorporated what we thought was uh, was really good in terms of tenant protection, improving that. Um, but there was no sense of real crisis at that point. And then it blew up, blew up really, didn't it? Mm -hmm. And because there was a lack of... Um, of, of of houses available so it uh, the for, supply is low absolutely the supply is very low and so what i've seen in my writing uh, completely is really the fact that you know there was a big influx of 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 newcomers people that are coming from uh, from canada from other parts of canada and so that uh, really the the whole housing market just exploded and then 
there's not enough people or not enough houses being built to just keep the status quo. Um, so people are moving out and I've had, you know, problems in my riding where people sold their house and then figured out after that they didn't have any place to go because uh, there was nothing to rent in the riding. So then ended up coming to the cities or Moncton, Dieppe. And then, you know, so the problem is being, uh, the pressure is coming from everywhere. And, and there's a, there's specifics in the, in the rural region that, that, have that effect. Absolutely. Well, the Residential Tenancies Act came up and that was a theme that I noticed in in this response letter was that, um, granted, this is not explicitly said, but it's how I interpreted it because it's the response I got from a petition I signed about the rent cap. So maybe this is an unfair interpretation and that's not how the letter was intended. But I'm like, well, you sent it out for this, so I'm interpreting it thusly. Um, It was that the the rent cap is gone but the residential tenancies uh uh tribunal tribunal, tribunal thank you the residential residential tenancies tribunal now has a huge burden of work in my opinion because every unreasonable um rent hike is now brought to their attention to determine so i i guess d- just as a nuts and bolts thing um the letter doesn't define unreasonable does the Residential Tenancies Act give a sense, a definition or a framework for what an unreasonable rent hike would look like? We've, we've had trouble. Of. Yeah, we've had trouble getting clear answers on how it's going to be evaluated. So uh, there's sort of two tests they look at. One is uh, what, are, what, are the, what are the rents around the building that you're getting a notice of rent increase in? And, and is the rent increase bringing it kind of into the same zone as the other rents in the area, and the area can be quite large. Um, and the other is, what's the rate of inflation? And if the rate of inflation is, if it, if it hikes way above the rate of inflation, then it enables them to um, spread out the rent increase over time, over a year or two. And so if there has been upward pressure on rents, as we've seen, um, then what does that mean for evaluating what's reasonable? Um, If it's comparing it to other rents that have already been hiked up, like before there was the rent cap, for example, then... Then how like how do you evaluate what's fair? What's been been you know, we've had rents skyrocket in New Brunswick, um, and you know we think of like real estate investment trusts, um, like the commodification of housing and the and the steep increase in pricing, and so that's the new landscape. And so, what's fair? Uh, <laughs> isn't fair. Well, uh, oh, sorry, go well, ahead. But what's fair isn't necessarily also, um, you know, uh, and, uh, at what perspective are we looking at it? So the, the government is, is I think, giving the big, uh, the big part of, of the, the fairness to the owners um, in the sense where, well, um, they've bought, you know, a building uh, in a market that, that's purely based on speculation. And so there's been, you know, places in, in, in different parts of the province that have been sold for way more than what they actually uh, are worth. And so, um, and then they're raising the rent saying that well, we have to pay our bills. And so the, the I guess the, the fairness is, is being given to them and not necessarily um, to housing as a human right. So right. It, 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 it depends of the whose perspective of fairness we're looking at. Mm-hmm. That's definitely been an ongoing theme for me is comparing investment to human rights and 
um, not acknowledging that that balance needs to factor in the very different consequences that you have versus your investment going south versus your human rights not being respected. Um, at least that's been a theme I've personally noticed in this uh, conversation. Um, but just coming back to the residential tenancies tribunal, which is a mouthful, but that's fine. We can call it the RTT. Ooh, RTT, <laughs> I like that. Um, so with the RTT, do they even have the volume or the capacity to deal with all, the, with what I assume are going to be a lot of cases brought to them, even with the kind of increase from 30 to 60 days? So I would say no, they don't have the capacity right now. And the the wait times for, for this process, you know, I have constituents who I've been helping them navigate this. The the wait times are, it, it takes longer than I think it's, it's supposed to. Um, and so instead of having a rent cap in place, uh, continuing the one in, that was in place to protect tenants, they are funding the RTT. They're increasing their budget by a million dollars so that they can handle all of the complaints that are coming in instead of treating the root cause. So that's what's happening. That's what we're seeing in their budget. That's how they want to handle this. Okay. As, but even with that extra money and with the extra time, will they be able, like, is that feasible? Good question. I mean, they've just added all this, this extra money to the budget, so we don't know yet whether it's going to be sufficient. And, and it depends, I guess, what else they do, because the Minister of Housing keeps saying that later this year, she's bringing in some additional legislation around housing, and we don't know what it is. Yeah, that's, that was something that was in there, was the six-month uh, housing strategy that was coming up. I had questions about that, but I don't want to lose my thread on this, um, about the, the RTT. So, like, part of my concern with kind of the absence of a rent cap was that people who have, like, uh, infrastructure problems, like the foundations rotting away, there's pests, the landlords aren't dealing with that, that they're going to have a harder time accessing uh, the, the, the RTT. And I also had concerns for newcomers who maybe have a language barrier. Are those reasonable concerns or is there like things in place to, to or is there a triage system? Like, how does that work? Absolutely. It's a concern. And I'd add to that uh, people who are fearful that if they complain to the residential tenancies tribunal, that there will be, um, uh, what's the word? Retaliation. Be retaliation. Thank you. Yes. Retaliation. And they will be evicted. That's heavy. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a big fear. Uh, there's a lot of stress that uh, comes along with all of this for, for tenants. Um, and, and when we're talking about tenants, we're talking about a lot of different people in our community. It's not a homogenous group. No, no, exactly. It's, um, you know, seniors on a fixed income. It's families that can't find a unit and are discriminated against. Um, and the RTT does not have jurisdiction over that. So they say, go file a human rights complaint. Well, if you're struggling to find housing, you're not going and going through that long process. You're just trying to find somewhere to rent. Um, Especially because in the housing continuum, there is not good services for emergency shelter because of the lack of housing, right? Because like, because right now, like I, I have a background in social work, not in New Brunswick, but I think it's the same principle applies here. Um, the, the lack of housing stock means that your emergency shelter functions as transitional housing, despite not being designed to function as such. Mm hmm. Yes, we, we don't have enough of any of those resources along the line. And 
yeah, emergency shelters are not for like crisis emergencies. They're being treated as basically like substitute housing. And we see that every winter the snow starts to fly and government goes, oh my gosh, I guess we better get something up and running again. Even though advocates, even though um, people who are impacted by this have been speaking up and saying, not only do you need to invest in emergency housing to prevent people from dying in the winter and and help people have protection and, and some safety. I think Moncton but, lost 22 people this year. Like, th- like these are choices that we're making to let people die. Like, the, like it's that serious. It's it, like, that's what's happening. It's, it's terrible. And then, and they don't seem to understand like, that that's the that's the bandaid that should be like the last resort that should be in a, in a crisis not all the time invest in more housing and they're planning to build 380 units and they give themselves standing ovations for that but there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who need housing we need more than 380 units and, yeah. the, and the department of social development is so swamped the way they're organized that um they do can do nothing and and it's sort of not part of their practice for people who are about to become homeless, who are about to lose their apartment, who are about to be evicted or can't afford the rent anymore. And we all know what happens. They, you, they can go and, and approach social development after they actually are homeless. But if they're, Which is much more expensive. If they're on the verge of becoming homeless, no, sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. Call us back when you're actually homeless. That is the reality that people need to know about. Mm-hmm. And that was something that reflects a conversation I had with John Whedon from the Greater Moncton Homelessness Steering Committee was that they are housing people r- rel- quicker than I assumed was happening, but they but there's always an influx of more people onto the list. There's all it's 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 not just a matter of having one um, a stable group of people that you then need to house and problem solve, dust dust off of hands. It's it, it's that group grows and there's an influx of new people coming in because the rents aren't sustainable and increasingly renters are vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. And we know that the NB housing list, so a list of people looking for affordable housing, and that's not everyone who needs it. That's just the people who got onto the list. Um has gone up and gone up and like doubled in the last few years. Up, It's around 8,000 now, more than that. Uh, and so, yes, it, it, but not only is it that this is continuous because more and more people are, uh, are needing it when someone gets housed, but it's the, like the need is increasing. It's, it's mm-hmm. like exponential and it's in urban areas and it's in rural areas. And, you know, Kevin talked about people leaving uh, ur- uh, rural areas to go to urban areas or even having to change locations and go to another rural area. Um, it's definitely happening in my community, um, and and it's been really hard for for families. Uh, it's it's hard for everyone who's facing this, but it's been hard for families to find a unit that works for them. Um, and a lot of the houses that were being rented are, have now been sold and are no longer on the rental market. And that that was especially true for for Sackville. We've seen those. Um, become, you know, just houses where someone's living and are no longer available to to house a whole family. Right. So like, I'm a little bit sometimes confused about why there isn't quicker action being taken. Because here was my understanding from having a cursory glance at the news, which was many, the, the federal government wants to take a rapid housing construction initiative 
and and build kind of like kind of catch up from the neglect and so new and but of course it's the province's job to kind of put that into action just like with a lot of our systems so the federal government gave us a chunk of money I'm sorry, it's a very naive understanding of how government works, but like <laughs> the, 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 the federal government gave, gave provinces like New Brunswick a chunk of money to build. What's going on with that money? With the way, what, what New Brunswick negotiated um, put all the building on the back end of the 10-year agreement. So a lot of the, the That's majority, the bilateral kind of, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the majority of new units get built towards the end of the 10 years, and the earlier part is mostly renovating existing social housing that the province owns. And so that's one choice they made. Two, and maybe this is related, uh, the premier and his cabinet didn't see this as a political priority. The political was just, was not there. Um, Megan, you talk about how it took so long for finally the premier and his cabinet to come around to the fact that there was a crisis they needed to deal with. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note about the bilateral agreement. So this 10 year housing plan, at the end of it, if they do everything they're supposed to do, there will only be 1,200 affordable housing units, and not all of them will be new. Some of them will be units that already existed and they've added a rent supplement. So we're not talking about that many affordable housing units at the end of this 10 years. We're talking about about 1,200. Again, so inadequate. And my fear, um, you know, when you look at that, representing an extremely rural riding is, and, and I understand that the need is very great in urban centers, but you know, but we're, you we're, wanna, not, we're just going to neglect be, a, a, another important group of people. And there's also related populations, right? A, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're going to be completely after um, the, the major, the, so some of the work in the, especially when governments leave it mostly up to free market to kind of, of, of build the stock. And so, um, and, and I mean, uh, the housing crisis and homelessness has a, a completely different face in rural areas. I have this this one person I'm thinking about that lives in the coastal community that the two houses beside her, an old lady, um, two houses beside her were bought um, as, as second homes uh, by people with, uh, with a lot of money. And so they uh, put rocks uh, on to, 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 uh, to um, protect uh, their lands. Yeah. And what's happening is that then there's, there's a, a ripple effect that her land's being... Um, eaten up uh, a lot quicker eroded a lot quicker and and she is living on fixed income she's owned that house her whole life and uh, she can't pay to to not so that her land can't erode she does not have that kind of money she's a a senior living on fixed income so um she's having to move out but there's no renting stock available in Kent county and so where does where where does she go right that's the kind of homelessness that that you know in, in rural areas uh, th that's what homelessness could look like uh, in a different kind of way. Absolutely. And putting that, keeping that focus on uh, rural New Brunswick. Um, so th there's uh, the federal investment of 1.6 million to establish the housing hub of New Brunswick. And um, that's supposed to focus on rural areas. Is that, is that correct? Um, so the word establish stood out to me. That doesn't currently that means it doesn't currently exist. What's like, so it's kind of, a, it's a three part question. How quick does it take to establish something like that? How effective will it be when it is established? And 
and and does this what it theor- theoretically in a in a pretend world where the housing hub of New Brunswick had come in smoothly on the heels of the rent cap and was already established would it have been a sufficient alternative the thing about the the hub that's important to remember is it it specifically is designed to provide housing for uh, workers in rural areas and so it's it's really tied uh, to the workforce in rural like, New Brunswick, like migrant workers, that kind of thing, or well, whoever you know, whoever is working in a in a in a plant or an industry where there's where there's lack of housing, it's a huge problem. People are are, are living in Moncton and commuting huge different distances, or being bused from here uh, mm-hmm. up to uh, uh, up the coast to work in fish plants and so on. So, so it's it, that's what was really a driver around that. Uh, hopefully it provides broader benefits, but it's, it's, it is targeted in that way. So it's not going to be a uniform approach across the province. So it's not something that's even meant for the entire rural population. It's very much targeted to a very specific, narrow segment of the rural population. Yeah. Significant and important, but it's, sure. it's not uh, broad, no. No, it's, it's not to minimize, but just to get a sense of the scope of the program. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. There isn't a, a, a comprehensive plan. And at the moment, like just last week, the premier said, well, you know, we're going to study the housing issue. It's like, where have you been and what have you been doing? (laughs) They've been studying it for too long. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a complexity of rolling programs like that out. And absolutely. But when uh, you study and you study and you study and you study, um, Where's the action, and then you 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 see the the needs grow and grow and grow, and then it becomes more and more complex. So well, then you need to restudy not- it because now the needs have grown. You see, so now we need to re relook at what what and like it makes sense to do an evidence based approach, but that's not a re- but there still needs to be action taken, especially because you know the again that this is a life and death issue in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and it's not like no one has ever studied housing. It's not like we don't know that housing first is the best approach. It's not like we don't know that even if we're talking about budgets, that it's less expensive to just have people in housing than in all the other places that they might end up through no fault of their own, but just they might end up in the ER. They might end up in an emergency shelter. It'd be better to just have a rent supplement or or just some permanent housing. It's not like we don't know how to support people. It's not like we don't know that if people had a livable income, they could, you know, take, they'd have um, better health outcomes. They'd, they, like, we know all of these things. So it's just a choice. They're making choices not to do these things. It's not like we know a rent cap works. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was something that really stood out to me when we were talking about the definition of unreasonable, which was there nowhere in that definition does the word income come up. There's no tied to income in, in, in what you guys shared with me about what reasonable could mean in the Residential Tenancies Act. But affordable housing usually is defined as a percentage of income, although not, not always. I've seen it defined based on the market, but that's not, that's not what we're talking about when we are talking about affordable housing. Exactly. And I think that's an important distinction to make. We should be talking about it as a percentage of income uh, and rather than comparing it to the market because, okay, so what 10% below market rate, like the, that might not be affordable for a lot of people. 
what does it mean for it to be affordable in our communities? And so that's that's really looking at at people's incomes. And we could have a whole other discussion about what people's incomes look like in New Brunswick, and that there's problems there too. Uh, but but and and it's tied together. That's definitely a worthwhile conversation to have, especially because like a lot of what I've been trying to research for a future episode has been the phenomenon we've seen in the states about housing stock being purchased on mass as an as in by large companies um, as kind of in, in some sort of like investment framework. And right now, as best I can tell, I'm still at the beginning stages of this. Canada seems to be a black box on that issue where we are not tracking who's buying housing stock and why. But it's increasingly the case that's happening here. So outside investors are coming, buying buildings, and then wanting to charge higher rents than the current tenants have, and then looking for ways to uh, evict them or raise the rents unreasonably that they eventually will cause them to leave without actually having to evict them. So that when they were seeing that uh, all over the province. Absolutely. So it's a growing phenomena and uh, th- that's a piece, a piece of it that, that uh, the government doesn't seem to, to want to acknowledge. Um, but if you start from the perspective that housing is a right, that's still, if you use that as the lens as we do through which to look at what housing policy should be, what measures need to be put in place, what legislative protections should be there. Well, then you would have a whole different, <laughs> a whole different regime than we've got now. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Especially because looking at the, the tax policy for landlords right now, it seems to be very forgiving. And, um, you know, again, it's something I want to look into in more detail, but I am surprised that there is no distinction made between landlords who are maybe small holding community members who are looking at it as like an investment piece as an extension, you, you know, like the, the middle class dream kind of thing mm-hmm. versus these large corporations. There is zero distinction made between in community corporations and out of community corporations between size of holdings. It's just... Um, it, it, it's just a a low rate of tax for everyone. Yeah. And we've tried to bring that distinction, you know, in the legislature, in committee, studying bills where they're, they're looking to, uh, you know, give assessment breaks and stuff. And I tried to bring in uh, an amendment that would recognize um, that it would be for the smaller ones and that it would exclude the uh, real estate investment trusts and these really profit driven ones uh, and that are, um, you know, fine profit, that, that's, that's fine. But wh- when profit is, is um, valued balance, right? over people's right to housing and when it's these, these investors that are just trying to squeeze every dollar that they can out of the housing and are evicting people, I was trying to exclude that. And <laughs> the minister would not have it and was also coming at me and saying, oh, well, is profit a bad word now? And it's like, oh, that like you're, you're missing the point and missing that nuance. And that's one of the frustrating things in the legislature and in politics sometimes is there's nuance. And, and so we, we need to explore that and, and make better policy as a result of having looked at it. But there's just not an appetite for that. And I think for the government right now, like their policies basically are in, encouraging that. That's, this is, what is happening is exactly what they want. And uh, we could look look at the housing problem in New Brunswick and 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 compare it. You know, like basically what's happening to New Brunswick is that uh, New Brunswick is 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 going through gentrification. 
and and so we're seeing the same level as in 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 uh, in wards and cities or the quartiers, neighborhoods. Neighborhoods. Uh, we're seeing this on a provincial level, really gentrification of, of of New Brunswick, and this government wants that. I mean, they're 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 putting. Uh, ads out <laughs> everywhere um, saying, come and live in New Brunswick, houses are cheap. Right. You know, and like the, uh, just to give some perspective about where I come from on this issue, um, I am from Vancouver originally um, and was in university when the housing crisis really started to, to boom out there. And, um, you know, I see Moncton in kind of a similar place to where, and I'd love your opinions on this because this is very much not a researched opinion. It's a personal lived experienced opinion. So like, you know, uh, um, I'd, I'd love uh, more perspective as well. But um, I see Moncton reminds me a lot of where Vancouver was in 1992, where there were inklings and there was a construction happening and there was talk. Um, and then there was a lot of dragging of feet to put in the kinds of policies that would prevent the Vancouver of today, where, you know, the CBC just came out with this story where social assistance assistance pays you $500, but your, your Roach Motel SRO, uh, single room occupancy, uh, and, and again, not nice buildings. Um, like I, I don't, I don't mean to be glib, but it's just frustrating because these are not well-maintained. The landlords are not investing in the property. There's pests, there's foundation issues. $1,000 a month. You know, that's not impossible to happen here. And, and I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. <laughs> People are, are getting, you know, around $600 a month. And then the, the rents are like, it's hard to find something. Um, and so like that, that's basically what's happening here where people are, don't have enough to eat or are not paying their power bills or don't have housing. Like, it, yeah, that, that's where we're at. That's the reality for a lot of people. Yeah. And there are policies that we can put into place that, it, again, it's not, it's not an either or. It's, it's keeping people in their homes so they can keep being like, you know, community members with dignity and maybe a little bit of extra income to buy a pizza every other week, you know, like that's, that's better. But I, th I think that's my concern when there isn't, um, there isn't a distinction being made between the, the landlords who are invested in the community on a whole spectrum, you know, uh, versus a kind of landlord that is not interested in, in the wellness of the community. Like it's, it's not even treating people as a product. It's treating people as fuel and you're not concerned if they get burned up. Yeah. And I've had lots of conversations with those landlords who have been longstanding members of the community. Uh, and they're worried. <laughs> they're very concerned. In fact, that's how I learned that the, the residential investment trusts don't pay income tax. They don't pay income and, tax? And so, you know, I was talking to a, 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 one of the landlords in town who's been there for a long time, uh, and he, he was saying, yeah, you, you, have to, you have to divide these up, and, and, and those guys don't pay uh, income tax. Uh, there are other tax breaks for the, the big property owners that aren't investment trusts, that, uh, and then the, the sort of smaller um, community-centered um, uh, property owners, landlords, uh, end up actually proportionally paying more than the other ones. Uh, so 
it's, it, is a, it is a real problem. We need to keep people housed, so we need a rent cap to do that. We need to put a, a reverse onus system in place so that if a landlord says, well, I have these extra extraordinary expenses this year, I need to go above the rent cap, then... They can go to the residential, get, the RTC. Have them go to the residential tenancy trying to make their case. I was talking to a landlord on Sunday who totally thought that was a great idea. They thought that was good. And he was also pointing out, actually, and he would be a community sort of based property owner without that much property, but he has some rentals, saying, you know, the, the tax breaks that were given, uh, property tax breaks, those aren't going to the tenants. No, of course they're not, right. because there's no incentive right now to lower the rents because the housing supply is so low. Like if right. we were in a case where there was tons of vacant apartments, right, having a lower rate of tax would be helpful because then you say, oh, well, you know, I will, I will draw someone here if I could lower the rent a hundred dollars cheaper, but my, my, but, but uh, my, that my books won't balance if I do that. Like, oh, tax went down. Oh, great. I can lower that down, draw someone in. There's no vacancies. And now what I'm seeing in Fredericton, and maybe it's happening in Moncton too, uh, compassion fatigue is starting to set in as the number of people on the streets increases. And, and mm. you know, despite the efforts to house people, there still seems to be more and more and more people uh, on the streets. And, and as it was pointed out to me recently, you know, it's not just homelessness, but you've got a drug crisis on top of it. And you've got a mental health crisis on top of it. And so uh, those three things of creating this perfect storm in our downtowns in our major cities. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see it in Moncton, you can see it in Fredericton, you can see it in St. John, and it's added to by people uh, who can't find any supports or services in smaller towns around the province coming into Fredericton, coming into Moncton. I mean, it's not that long ago, only three or four years ago, where I pretty well knew everyone and recognized everyone who was on the street in downtown Fredericton. It's in my riding, downtown. Now, most of the people who I knew are housed and the, the people who are there now, I don't, I don't know them. And some of them know, where did you come, come from? from Sackville. Yeah. Where'd you come from? <laughs> I know from? some, but yeah. yeah, exactly. It's just like, well, so you're getting this compassion fatigue and, and it's really uh, awful. So you get some people starting to say, well, we shouldn't have a community kitchen because to feed people, because that's just attracting people from outside the city, or we shouldn't be you know, providing support in the wintertime or all these things. So we're not going, we're going in a terrible direction. Yeah. Societally. Definitely, and, and a rural perspective is that we're not we're not you know dealing with rural uh, with rural homelessness where it's happening. So uh, the other day I was I was actually coming to Moncton and I, I picked up a hitchhiker and uh, a homeless person from uh, a community uh, in Kent County, and uh, he said, "Well, you know, uh, up here I could maybe get one meal or two meals a day, but I heard you could get three uh, in Moncton." So so that that's happening too because we're looking at the. In, there is a, a true homelessness crisis in, in the cities, but if we're looking at it at, at a rural perspective, rural communities could be part of that solution and have to be part of that solution and if you look at a, a balanced approach to it. Absolutely. Uh, Megan, you said earlier that like, you know, we saw that the rent capped work. What does that mean in real terms? Like, What were we seeing that, we, that we're calling, well, that's working? So what it meant was that uh, because we saw people getting, you know, 50% or 100% or more rent in increases. Yeah. And so what it meant was that 
they tenants had a way to stop that from happening to take it to the the residential tenancies tribunal and say look this is what they gave me and uh they're they're wanting me to pay this much and the residential tenancies tribunal would look at it would investigate and would say and would tell the landlord like sorry that's against the law you can't do that and it it stopped them it stopped them i saw it work um and it kept people housed and there are people that on like January 1st, started getting their rent hikes that are going to happen July 1st. And they're waiting still for what the RTT is going to tell them, like, is it reasonable or not? And they're, you know, people on fixed incomes, people who have nowhere else to go. And they're contacting me and we've been helping them. But like, we don't have the answer either. We're advocating. We need the rent cap to come back into place because that's the difference. Now there's no guarantee. And, and it's, it's scary and it's so stressful. And it, again, connecting back to health and mental health, the, this has a negative impact on people's mental health and on their health outcomes. And it, it's, we need to understand the connections here, um, but especially we need a rent cap. Especially because people in our health service, health services, are themselves experiencing a lot of compassion fatigue from the last three years. We don't need to create a second crisis for them to be dealing with. And and some of, frankly, some of the um, the healthcare workers are, are having trouble finding housing and maybe they're moving here and they're finding housing. And and it, it's like there's there hasn't been a plan in place for where people are going to live, how they're going to get healthcare as our population increases. I've got a little jingle here. <laughs> um, and 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 you know the government's bragging oh well we've made the population increase well n- no like the pandemic actually has played a big role in that but you're not ready for this you aren't putting in place what is needed for people to be housed and have health care so um it it's really frustrating to to watch and and they they don't seem to have the sense of urgency that um that they should when um so we kind of we've all kind of talked a bit about this kind of hesitancy to look the look at kind of reality on its own terms in the housing situation of New Brunswick but there was a rent there was the rent cap it did come into place so kind of uh, I, I guess what I'm asking for is a is a recent history uh Cole's notes what changed that 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 we got that yes that's a bit of a mystery. We're not quite sure because we had been pushing for it and pushing for it and pushing for it. We actually brought in two different bills that included rent caps and they both were defeated by the majority uh, government members. And so, um, so it's unclear, but of course the, de- the, the decision on the rent cap, and we also have some uh, rent information documents that uh, we obtained that showed there was total um, miscommunication and confusion going on inside government where public servants didn't know what pub- the cabinet ministers were doing or what the premier was doing. And so it was done very quickly um, and only temporarily because when, when it was announced, right, it was only for the year and it only came into into force in what? April or in something. Like, well, I think it came into force, was it in June? June but they June. brought it in in the budget in right. March yeah. and it was retroactive. It was confusing. Right. And they put it in the budget just like right before the budget was tabled. And so the RTT staff and all the staff were just like blindsided. (laughs) Yeah. 
So, so what, what precipitated that is unclear, but um, the question, that's one thing, but a bigger question is why did they decide, the Premier decide to only make it a temporary cap that would disappear in a year? And even there, there was confusion because the finance minister told us when they announced it, no, it, it, it'll be there, we'll review it though, and if we decide we don't need it, then we'll lift it. No, but it turns out to be the other way around, that it was automatically going to expire, and if you wanted to bring it in, you have to bring in a new piece of legislation. And and so um, I think a good question is, why did they get rid of it? What changed? The conditions that caused them to bring it in were the same, if not worse. And and so that's uh, that's that's the question I'd like answered. Definitely. Um, so I guess to, th this is actually a weirder, smoother transition than I thought it was going to be, um, because I had a, kind of another subject matter I wanted to talk with you, which is about faith in government and citizens participating in government. Because uh, as per the black box that led to, to both the arrival and the elimination of the rent cap, I think sometimes there's a lot of um, skepticism or pessimism or um, maybe naive cynicism around how government works, what, what people's interests are, and whether you can trust the people who are supposed to be representing us and putting legislation into place. So, so that, that kind of theme to me breaks down into a bunch of questions that I would love your guys' opinions on, which is, uh, so first of all, for, how do you, when you find someone you like whose, whose work you're doing that you're excited about, what's the best way to support them? Vote for them. Well, that, that happens like what, once every few years? There has to be something in between those dates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there's many different ways. I mean, there's, so obviously um, I, I see my role as an MLA as, you know, uh, an amplifier for a lot of, of those people. So obviously I, I don't have the time um, in, in a day. There's not enough hours in a day to um, do uh, research, do... Um, you know, really get into details, nifty details of absolutely everything. So obviously, you know, people that that are interested, um, I, I mean, just reaching out and saying like, look, this is my interest. This is what I like doing. This is, this is a subject or an issue that I'm very passionate about. And, you know, what kind of information could uh, we be working on or what kind of actions could we be doing um, that I, as an MLA, could be amplifying in the house. I could... Uh, we could be organizing in a community and um, sometimes people from other places too. It's like, how do we uh, get people involved into active politics? Active politics is just one part of it, right? It's, it's this small little part of, of what makes stuff move. But, um, but we do need people uh, wanting to uh, organize campaigns, run an election, um, you know, work on uh, platforms. And, and that's all kind of work that I, I, I would say, reach out. Let's have a conversation. Uh, let's let's. Uh, I mean, you go with what's happening. That, that politics is that. It's 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 you know it's a, what is happening today right there and where are we going? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think there needs to be a part of that where there there's you know I might have needs, but I'm not working for my needs. I'm working for 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 your needs, right? I'm amplifying what is needed in, in, in the legislative assembly. That's why it's so important for people to share their stories. 
yeah. with their MLAs. Like that, that, that helps us, uh, helps inform our work in the legislative assembly. It reveals systemic problems that need to be addressed, changes in legislation, changes in budget priorities, changes in programs that we can fight for and do fight for in the legislative assembly. The other thing, sometimes it leads to action on their part. So recently someone who got a notice of a significant rent increase, you know, called me and said, what do I do? And what we talked about is sort of what's in place, but she, but but I said, you know, I, I knew her a bit and she's a puppeteer and I works with kids. And I said, you've got quite a gift. Why don't you use it uh, and use your puppets to send a message, you know, out on social media talking about your specific experience and uh, and sharing that. So so people who aren't so connected to what the struggles that tenants are facing would have a better understanding. She did it. It's a brilliant video. And uh, I think Muppets um, is kind of what her puppets are like. So um, that's so impressive. It, uh, so so those kinds of things happen too, you know, um, in terms of uh, interacting with uh, us as MLAs, and then then it can because people often will say, you know, what what can I do? Like I want to do something. What can I do? And so I hear that all the time. As yeah. I see mm -hmm. problems, I'm concerned about it. I want to see better, but I don't know what to do. That is the number one thing I hear in conversations like this. Mm -hmm. And and I think that like I know that we as Greens f try to find ways to collaborate or like if you do this this piece of it, I'll do this piece of it. And so an example would be petitions. And to be fair. Petitions don't um, <laughs> change the world, but we're able to table petitions. Uh, so maybe they collect signatures and we're able to talk about it in the house and maybe get media attention on it and put pressure for change. So that's just one small example, but I think it's, um, you know, obviously there is the electoral politics part. So like helping uh, on campaigns and, and voting for, for someone you believe in, but then there's the civil society part. And I think there's room there for us to grow in New Brunswick and, and strengthen our civil society and like put pressure on the government, which it's, it's nice when there's some coordination because we're in the legislature pushing, but if there's people like, and sometimes they're literally outside <laughs> pushing on government, you know, making some noise like the climate strikers last week, then, you know, there's more coordination and, and it's, it's just, um, it's just better and, and stronger. And I think that's part of, of what it helps to move the the needle. We're, we're not there yet on a lot of things, but I, I can see things changing a bit when there's that type of energy put into it. No, absolutely. Because I think like something I tell myself a lot is like no one thing you do is guaranteed to have results, but doing nothing will definitely have the result of nothing. <laughs> um, but I guess that kind of moves into more of a question about expectations, you know, because like I, I like to have like, you know, our first guest, Debbie Warren, said something that's really stuck with me. She said it's hard to govern. Um, you know, you have, you're trying to um, kind of lead the best interests of a non-homogenous group of people who all sometimes have diametrically different interests. It's not an easy job. Um, you know, and I, I think of like the number of times when I, I voted for someone that I was very excited about, they get into the office and they didn't do the things they said they were going to do that I, that, that I was excited about, right? So I guess from how much of that is... How, how, what do realistic expectations of our elected officials look like? Like what are, what are some, some, uh, like, um, 
yeah, what, what are some realistic expectations of the people who are in office trying to trying to follow through on promises but maybe can't? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I, I always tell my constituents, um, like the only promise I did knocking on doors and I still always make the same promise is that I will work hard and do my best. And, and, uh, and I run on a set of values. So I, I hold these values and I'll, I'll, I'll stay, you know, um, uh, true to those values. And even if, you know, um, like I remember this one person, uh, I had just gotten elected in 2018 uh, Kent County, you, everyone knows Kent County uh, for the 2013 shale gas um, activism and, and, uh, and, and uh, manifestation. Um, protests. Protests. Um, and, and so this guy ends up in my office and says, like, I want shale gas in Kent County. So uh, now you're my elected official. You're going to work for me. Uh, no, obviously not. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to work on that. But I did say... I'm sure we have something somewhere in common that we could work on, right? And so uh, expectations for me uh, as an MLA is like, uh, these are my values. I'm going to work my best um, to to represent uh, these values in with your stories, with your lived experiences, um, to try to make change. But um, but at the same time, uh, there's always some concrete stuff we could work on and there's some long-term stuff that we need to work on. And we need to continue to work on that long-term stuff because we're never going to get there if we stop. So it's going to take long, especially with, with bigger ideals like and, and you know, working in the worldview that we are, you know, fighting, fighting capitalism, fighting uh, neoliberalism. Fight, this, is, this is not... The, the only way this is going to change quick is, is if, you know, there's a revolution at the population level. That's not going to happen in elected politics. Elected politics is going to uh, reform systems in, in a slower manner. And, and so that is another expectation. I mean, and there's different ways of getting organized. And, and, and you know, I think you need to encourage all those kind of ways of getting organized. But people should have high expectations. Because if the bar is low and uh, those who in, uh, sit in the seats of power see that, they're not going to rise to the occasion. So people should have high expectations and insist on them, insist on them. And that's, that's why we get people mm-hmm. out in front of the legislature uh, at rallies and demonstrations. So important uh, or doing other things to put pressure on, you know, calling the premier's office or whatever it is. And, and by the way, it, it does matter to call your MLA or, or meet with your MLA. Uh, I never thought that was true until I was one. I'd never been in an MLA's office before I was one. I didn't even know you were allowed to meet with your MLA, to be honest. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Every Monday. Yep. But it puts, it puts, it puts uh, that on their radar and, and influence, can influence their thinking. It's important. Um, so if, if, just like you said earlier, if you don't do it, it's not going you know, to have any impact. So th- it actually is important. It is important. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope that that's a message people will take to heart. Yeah, it's true. You know, having a meeting, making a call, sending an email, um, those are all ways to, to reach out. And and it's interesting. I mean, I think people already know, like, one of the reasons I'm in politics is because of the climate crisis. But, like, I barely hear from anyone on that issue. Um, and I hear from a lot of people uh, about roads. And, you know, that's 
that's what happens in rural New Brunswick. And and especially because of the history of corruption in how roads get paved and all of that, um, I think those expectations of MLAs to... Um, to be corrupt, that's not a good one. But <laughs> but the expectation to to listen and to work for your constituents, yes, I'm on board with that. And so um, if MLAs are mostly hearing about roads, what what are they likely to think is important for them to put their energy into? And I don't, this is not true of the Green Caucus. My Green colleagues, I'm so proud of the work they do. We care about the legislation. We study it. We debate things. We bring things to the legislature because while, of course, we serve our communities and um, and work there in, in our constituencies, we know that systemic change is going to happen at the legislative level. And I don't see that level of um, energy in the legislature from the other parties. And it's very disappointing and it concerns me about our democracy. Like what kind of legislation is going through? Um, is it being studied and debated properly? Are, are we open to amendments? Like the answer is unfortunately no. And so that, like, that's, that's the reality of what I've seen. And that was one of the most shocking parts was that like what happens in the legislature, like it matters, but it, it it's not treated with the 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 weight the weight that it should be yeah because like something as um for myself someone who's not ever run for office I, I don't think i've ever stepped inside of the new brunswick parliament is the way that i feel the most connected to what's going on in parliament is through news stories you know the cbc will cover something and they do a great job this is not a criticism of the media it's merely just an acknowledgement of the limitation of the medium let's say because if there's nothing newsworthy happening how do you stay connected to the kind of quotidien to the day-to-day -day of of parliament in a meaningful way mm -hmm. and sometimes the newsworthy things that might be contained in, in legislation we're debating um, doesn't get covered because that requires quite a, a, a time investment to pay attention to that, to, to sort of understand what the issues are around that, that particular bill that's, that's on its way to becoming a law. And uh, that, that, that's an issue, and I don't know how it gets dealt with. So, so the media mostly focuses on question period, and there's a lot of theater in question period, unfortunately. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, it's all about that. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's when the school classes come in, too, is to watch <laughs> question period. So that's all they see. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's not, it doesn't look good on us often. Mm -hmm. I can remember being in high school, going on a field trip to the legislature for question period and thinking, oh, my gosh, it's just like all these people yelling at each other and mostly, you know, white men yelling at each other for question period. Oh, boy. Politics. I, yeah. And I did have this thought of, I don't know if I'd want to do that. But at the same time, we need people. <laughs> we need people there who are going to do it differently. Right. And so th that's important to me um, to... Like I, I've been saying this since before I was elected, I'm gonna. I need to figure out how it can be done um, for someone like me. Because if I can't do it, there's lots of other people that can't do it, and that's not right. And and it it isn't easy. These structures are not accessible either to you know citizens and and residents of New Brunswick, um, but to a lot of people 
who might be really great at serving as MLAs, but not accessible. And so there's it, there's some a lot of problems with the way our institutions have been created and and the the way they function. Definitely. Yeah, it's 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 a good question. It's it's not easy to answer because I think you know by watching question period or the member statements, you could easily get you know a part of what the priorities of the different parties are, and um, but you're not getting the the, the you know the real uh, thorough and thought process or the longer speeches in the house on, on, on different bills is often when you could elaborate and, and go more into detail. But I think at a local level, I think one of the best ways to stay informed, uh, I know my colleagues and I do this, uh, but uh, town hall meetings. And if your MLA doesn't do a town hall meeting, meeting, um, you know, with, with other uh, constituents, uh, start pressuring your MLAs to do town hall meetings. And uh, town hall meetings is a good place where um, MLAs get to listen to their constituents, but also share their positions with their constituents on, on many subjects. And I know I always have a, a Q&A and, and I, I always tell like, you know, there, there's there's no questions that are off limit in the sense where you know you're allowed to know you know where I'm going and and where how I'm seeing stuff because one one of my jobs is gathering information from a lot of different perspectives in in my in my in my writing and so you're you're allowed to know where I am on this issue and so um, so I think that's a that's another good way that uh, people could stay stay in tuned uh, like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, everyone, for taking the time, for coming on, for talking to me about these issues. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for, for having, having us. us. Thank you. Thanks. Well and Fair is brought to you by La Station Workspace, working in partnership with O Strategies. La Station is a co-working space that brings people together in Moncton, New Brunswick, for community and collaboration. Well and Fair is hosted by me, Anna Larad, and produced by Elevate Studios.